I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Ian Hanamansing. Welcome to Checkup's Ask Me Anything podcast. And today you're about to hear our AMA about Russia, the death of Alexei Navalny, and the war in Ukraine. Alexei Navalny has been an extraordinary fighter for uh, human rights, uh, for democracy, and someone who is standing up for the Russian people. Make no mistake. Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. We will continue to stand with Ukraine for Ukraine's security and for ours. Ukraine is still waiting for $60 billion in funding from the United States to help it in its fight against Russia. At the time of this broadcast, we were just days away from Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny dying in prison. U.S. President Joe Biden said he has no doubt the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, is to blame. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau called Putin a monster in response to the news. And this is all happening as we closed in on the two-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine. That is the focus of our Ask Me Anything. We have two guests. Maria Popova is an associate professor of political science at McGill University. She specializes in Russia and Ukraine. And Andrew Rasoulis is a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and a former official with the Department of National Defense. They answered questions about Russia, the death of Alexei Navalny, and the war in Ukraine. Here are a few highlights from the show. Maria, Andrew, thank you very much for joining us. Very welcome. Good afternoon. Maria, let's start with you. Navalny has been a a major political opponent of Vladimir Putin for years now. At least that's the perception in the West. He was in jail serving charges of of political extremism that many saw as politically motivated. Uh, Tell us, first of all, how his death has been reported by the Russian media in the last couple of days. That's a very good question, Ian. And the Russian media has reported it very, very differently uh, from how we are talking about it. And they've reported it as an example of Western influence waning in Russia. They've emphasized uh, that this shows that Russia is on the right track and victory will be Russia's. So, um the Kremlin and unfortunately a sizable proportion of the Russian population were seeing Navalny as an agent of Western influence uh, rather than um, as a local hero. And how are they describing the death itself? Are they saying that it's accidental or the cause unknown or do they even address that? Not a lot of details on that. Uh, I mean, there's no um, there's no report yet. Uh, the body hasn't been released uh, to the family. Uh, Russia is not known for transparency, and especially in such a, a highly um, regime relevant um, event, they're not going to be uh, transparent about it. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Andrew, uh, we're going to toggle among a few different uh, topics here that are all related to Russia. Ukraine is hoping the U.S. Congress will approve a $60 billion military aid package. Uh, as Ukraine waits for those funds to come through, uh, how well-equipped is Ukraine right now to continue fighting? Not very well. They're, um, they're running out of ammunition. Uh, this is one of their biggest shortfalls. Uh, the loss of the town of Edvika over the last 24 hours uh, was a result not just because Ukrainians were lacking in ammunition and resources, but the Russians were bringing to bear uh, an overwhelming and asymmetrical power, including air power this time. So uh, essentially, Ukrainians uh, could not be able to withstand, A, the casualties they were taking in terms of the people, and certainly could not match. Uh, almost at a 10 to 1 ratio is where Russian artillery uh, was being applied to Ukraine in terms of the counter-battery fire. So, no, the Ukrainians are in a withdrawal uh, there. They're overall, it's a 1,000-kilometer front. Ukraine has adopted a strategic defense. And Russia is now uh, doing a, an offensive um, attacks across basically up and down the 1,000-kilometer front. Advika was the most noticeable one. But there are a number of other battles that are continuing and now will continue because the Russians, after taking this town of Advika, are now poising themselves after a refresh to go further west there's another town, but they're essentially going to try and drive to the uh, outer limits of the Donetsk Oblast. In fact, they want to take all four oblasts that they have annexed uh, with the Duma uh, law last year. Greg Chose is in Camrose, Alberta. Hi, Greg. Hi, Ian. Thank you for welcoming on your program. Yeah, thank you for uh, for being on the program. I see you were in Ukraine in February of 2021. Uh, what's your question for our panelists? Yeah. So first of all, I'm going back to Dnipro. That's the city I was in. Mm-hmm. They'll know where it is mm-hmm. on April the 2nd so of this year. So my question for the uh, two people is, is there a person, an agency, a nation, a collection of nations that can offer viable uh, plan for peace? Or is it you know, more intense fighting and years down the road, because that will not bode well for the nation of Ukraine and especially my friends and family in Dnipro. That's yeah. the question. I appreciate the question, Greg. And before I put it to our panelists, um, may I ask, why are you going to Ukraine right now? Well, I am a senior citizen. I'm almost 70. I'm a parish priest, and I go both for just caring for people in the Lutheran community, and also to teach English as a second language to those Ukrainian people who want to improve their English language. And I go for 90 days, so I'll be there from April the 2nd to the end of June. All right. Well, that's all uh, very interesting. I I won't always, I think, go to both panelists to answer uh, questions, but on this one, I think I will. And Maria, I'll start with you. I guess Greg's question is, is there either a country, an entity, somebody who can bring peace in Ukraine or will it take war to, to, to resolve this? Unfortunately, there is no agency that has or country that has the power to compel Russia to drop its goal. And Russia's goal is not peace, but taking over 
all of Ukraine. As, um, as Putin has emphasized many times, uh, he sees the goal for Russia not simply taking these territories that they now control, but the so-called denazification of Ukraine, which really is a, a shorthand for taking control of Ukraine's central government. And since the Ukrainians are not willing to live under Russian occupation, if uh, Putin succeeds in somehow establishing control over the central Ukrainian government, this will not really be peace, it will be occupation. Andrew, um, I have a question for you that's in a text message, but uh, do you want to add to Maria's answer? I'll be short to say that there have been a number of attempts. The Turks tried, the Chinese have offered a plan, the, 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 uh, the Ukrainians have their own plan. Uh, the point is that, that neither side, there's no um, meeting of a middle ground. Um, Russian objectives and Ukrainian objectives are completely mutually exclusive. The Ukraine wants to uh, take the, back the 1991 borders. For that, Russia is completely unacceptable. Russia wants basically a neutral Ukraine, a buffer zone Ukraine, non-NATO and so on. And they want to occupy certain parts of eastern Ukraine. So there's no deal to be made. It will be settled, unfortunately, only by force of arms. We are doing our Ask Me Anything on topics related to Russia, Alexei Navalny's death, uh, the second anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine, which is later this month, and uh, and also uh, talk about uh, nuclear space capability that the Russians are trying to develop. Uh, they are here to answer your questions. And I'll put this one to, to Andrew. How do experts uh, see Russia's nuclear posture towards NATO and the West as having evolved over the past two years? Should we be more or less concerned that when, than when Russia's invasion began? Andrew? Yeah, well, we've certainly gone closer to uh, the, the antagonism between the East and West has, has ramped up remarkably because the Russians now consider that they are in a sort of a technical war with NATO with Ukraine as a proxy. So it's not a direct war between NATO and Ukraine. If it were, then the whole nuclear dimension comes really into the into the forefront. But in anticipation of a potential escalation to that level, the Russians have been doing uh, whatever they can to actually ramp up not only their conventional force capability, which they've done uh, actually a great deal, but also they're fine tuning their nuclear arsenal because you've got to be because if it escalates to a, on to NATO uh, Russia con uh, war then the nuclear component is foremost. Now, we're not near that, but the Russians, you can't wait until that moment. And so in anticipation of what I think will be actually more of a Cold War redux, Cold War II, Cold War II, the Russians are preparing themselves uh, for that because a nuclear deterrent capability is quintessential to maintaining that deterrence posture vis-a-vis -vis NATO and Russia. I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, quintessential and also terrifying for those of us who remember the 80s and before. Maria, did you want to add anything to that? 
Yeah, I, I would say actually that the nuclear threat has significantly declined over the last two years. Why? Because in the beginning, Putin came out with some serious nuclear saber rattling, uh, threatening consequences if uh, the West helped Ukraine at all. And over the course of the last two years, we've seen him rationally uh, react to defeat on the battlefield. We've seen him withdraw from territories that, that Russia lost to Ukrainian uh, counteroffensive. We've seen Russian troops withdraw from uh, Kherson, which they claimed is already Russian territory, and we saw no nuclear escalation. And recently he has stopped threatening very often because after all these red lines have been crossed and he hasn't reacted, the nuclear threats are ringing more and more hollow. So I think actually we're now in a position where we are slightly more confident that he is a rational actor and he will not escalate uh, to nuclear confrontation. It's a real privilege here to have two experts whose uh, opinions will uh, sometimes be exactly aligned, uh, sometimes overlap, and sometimes be a little bit different, as we would expect from experts. And so a privilege to have them and a privilege, I hope you feel, for you to call in or text your questions to them in our Ask Me Anything. That was Maria Popova, an associate professor of political science at McGill University, who specializes in Russia and Ukraine. And just before her, you heard Andrew Rasoulis, a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, and he was a former official with the Department of National Defense. Let's go to Graham Branswell, who's in Langley, British Columbia. Hi, Graham. Hi. What's your question? Uh, my question is, what would uh, Ukraine reoccupation or of areas of uh, Donetsk, Luhansk, and Crimea mean for people who have adjusted to Russian life there, who have accepted Russian occupation and may have been in local positions of government and such, what does that mean for them if uh, Ukraine is able to uh, take back those lands? All right. That's uh, an interesting question. And I'm just going to arbitrarily start with Andrew on that. Do you have a view? Yeah, well, we've had examples of that. Uh, because in, 19, uh, in 2022, uh, in February, the Russians, when, they, when the war started, they took large swaths of Ukraine. And then the latter part of 2022, the Ukrainians beat back the Russians, like in Hershon and Kharkiv, for example, the whole city of Kharkiv had been taken over by the Russians and the Ukrainians came back. Now, what we did see, of course, and the result of that is some some of the people in, in uh, those Ukrainian cities had accommodated themselves with the Russians. So uh, the Ukrainians instituted, you know, the due process of looking for traitors, and um, they rounded up people and arrested people for treason. So that would be happening. I mean, it would be reestablishment of Ukrainian authority including judicial uh, and looking for collaborators. That's what happens. And that's what happened before. That's what would happen again. It may be a necessary process, Andrew, but it sounds like it must, it could be an ugly process. Do you have a sense of, of how things went? Uh, from what we can tell, it was actually done in a rather um, reasonably humane manner. Uh, mm -hmm. There's no, no great outrages. Uh, it was done systematically. Uh, it was in the public eye. Uh, so unlike in, in other wars, perhaps, where collaborators were given very bad treatment, uh, this time I think it was a bit more under under the microscope. So the, I don't have any stories of, uh, of any great uh, untoward repressions. And Maria, would you like to weigh in on this uh, question? Yeah, in fact, um, 
uh, if you remember the scenes from Kherson, there were uh, people on the streets hugging and greeting the Ukrainian army. And and so uh, it's not uh, the, the collaborator... Um, Cases are few and 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 far uh, in between, and as Andrew pointed out, following due process. So um, I don't actually expect major uh, collaboration uh, pro uh, processes in Donetsk and Crimea. What I mostly expect is that the people who collaborated uh, would leave with the Russians, as happened as it actually happened in um, in Kherson. Basically, those people who really helped uh, Russia establish occupation authorities, they withdrew with the Russians when the Russians left. So the population uh, that is there just uh, continues to live uh, normally. Mm -hmm. I want to ask a question to each of you in, in our remaining time. We probably have a, a couple of minutes left. Uh, about the death of Navalny. He certainly has a profile in the West, the documentary uh, directed by a Canadian, won an Oscar last year, for example. Uh, he get, has gotten a fair amount of uh, favorable news coverage over the year. But I'm curious about what his profile has been within Russia and, and, and you know, the impact you think his death would have. And, and Maria, why don't I begin by asking you that? Yeah, his, it's it's a really good and very important question. Uh, basically, we know from uh, from a lot of different uh, sources, polls, etc., that there are about twenty percent of the Russian population that is anti-war, and and so uh, among these twenty percent, uh, really Navalny was. Um, a hero, their last hope uh, for a different Russia for the fall of the Putin regime. The vast majority, however, of the Russian population is either apathetic uh, towards uh, Navalny and uh, towards the war or supportive of Putin and um, would say things, their position really could be uh, summarized as saying, well, Navalny knew what he was getting into. Um, by challenging Putin, and uh, this is what he got. So, so really, resignation, apathy, or outright hostility towards him as a supposedly a, a, an agent of the West. Yeah, it's so interesting and so important for us to keep in mind. Andrew, what would you like to add? Well, I would simply add that I think he'll go down as one of these um, Russian, uh, a tragic figure in the in the history of, uh, of Russian political actors. Uh, he was an outlier, uh, an important outlier, but he really never was in a, as, as, as Maria has said, he's, he, at 20%, he was never in a position where he's going to overthrow Putin or, or do a regime change. So he was, um, he's one of these tragic figures. Uh, Russian history is full of people who uh, take on the autocracy, whether it's the Tsars or, or the current uh, Putin government, uh, who basically are unsuccessful and are heroes to some people, but they're again, tragic heroes. I say this often, and I mean it, that uh, we're so lucky to have experts of your caliber, both of you, uh, to give us a half an hour on a Sunday afternoon here on Cross Country Checkup. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Pleasure.
Maria Popova, an associate professor of political science at McGill University who specializes in Russia and Ukraine. And Andrew Rasoulis is a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and a former official with the Department of National Defense. That was a portion of cross-country checkups AMA about Russia, the death of Alexei Navalny, and the war in Ukraine. We were joined by Maria Popova, an associate professor of political science at McGill University, and Andrew Rasoulis, a former official with the Department of National Defense. If you'd like to listen to yesterday's full two-hour edition of Cross Country Checkup, you can stream the podcast on the CBC Listen app. And if you'd like to share comments or appear on the show, you can go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. I'm Ian Hanna-Mansing. Thanks for listening. The next live edition of Checkup airs on CBC Radio, CBC News Network, and CBC News Explore next Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.